forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in to tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. Welcome, everyone. Um, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourselves on the microphones and tell the listener where they may have seen your name on their television before. And Sunil, let's start with you and go around. Oh, hi. My name is Sunil Nair. I'm a TV writer producer. Um, I realized just this year that I've been doing it for 20 years, which is humbling. Congrats. Uh, yeah, is that congrats? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, thanks. No, it's so, it's, you know, and uh, I started my, my writing career on a HBO show called Oz um, and firmly um, attest to the fact that I was the first person in the history of television to leave HBO for network TV, um, which is, you know, I don't know if I did the right thing. Um, but anyway, but I've had a great time. I've worked on CSI Miami. I've run Revenge. Uh, I just came off a show called The Red Line, of which I'm very proud that if you ever get a chance to see it, I'd love if you would. And now I'm excited to be working on a show called All Rise, a new legal drama for CBS this fall. And yeah, premieres this fall. Yes, right? this September. Awesome. Monday nights at 10. Great. Shoshana? Uh, I'm Shoshana Thatchi, um, and I'm a staff writer on Doom Patrol, and we just finished our first season. Congratulations. Thank and you. Was this your first staff writer gig? Yes. Oh, that's my amazing. first ever gig. Yeah, How exciting. Yeah. Good. We have 20 years experience. Exactly. <laughs> we have one year experience, yes. and we're going to get into it. Uh, I think she can teach you a lot. <laughs> you probably can. Uh, Kay and Aaron. Uh, uh, should we try to do this uh, simultaneously? Uh, <laughs> no, just Kay Rindell. Aaron Marr. We are a writing team. We will say every other word. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we've actually been in this business for about 20 years as well. Our first job was on Millennium. And we were then on a succession of shows that nobody's heard of. <laughs> and we just finished um, the sadly late and lamented Swamp Thing. Which is so good. Oh. Uh, I, I hope people will check it out. Thank it's you. Such a we're, really, we're very uh, and proud Doom of it. Too. Like, they've had a pretty good record so far on this yeah, DC absolutely. streaming play. And we're currently uh, running a new show for Netflix called Sentient. Or Sentient. Ooh. Or Sentient. <laughs> Everyone yeah. pronounces it differently. Listeners, let us know. <laughs> Please call in. <laughs> well, it's up to the first actor who says it, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> um, let's talk about um, what you are doing now, because I think it's, it's you know, obviously different for everyone. We're all in different phases of careers here. Um, but I'm, the thing I like to sort of hear about is what have you learned in the past year, the past 20 years <laughs> that you're now applying to your current job? And anyone who wants to jump in is welcome. Hmm. I mean, I guess I will say quickly that it's 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 a, it's a great time to be doing this um, for all the reasons that the content is extraordinary. There's so much different content that's supported, and that you know, creators like you guys are treated like the authors that you should be, actually, which is I think really exciting. But exclusive of that, as women and people of color in this industry, there's a kind of greater. Uh, you know, having been in this for 20 years, like you guys are saying that there was first just the chance like we got in there. Mm -hmm. um, but now that's not sufficient anymore. And I think it's like, you know, and I work in network television and just finishing the shows I got a chance to do. There's vital conversations that we're having with institutions now that um, we're not losing the fights. And mm -hmm. it's kind of exciting because they're starting to either join us or understand there's a point of view that's a necessity and there's a kind of responsibility. And so as exhausting as the work is, and I can only really speak from network television, um, these fights are getting more worth it, and there's there's more allies in the fights to sort of get the real stories out there to the widest possible audiences. That's incredible. And I'm, I remember we talked about this a little bit when we first met, that yeah. like Redline was an ambitious show yeah. in terms of saying something. Um, and I'm curious to hear about the conversations that you had in bringing that show to TV and, and actually putting, you know, 
issues on television while still making it entertaining, which the show was. Yeah, I mean, I'll say quick, but, you know, and Redline was the show um, that many didn't have a chance to see since it aired uh, basically against the last four episodes of Game of Thrones, which is not the <laughs> ideal time slot uh, for anything. But, you know, kudos to CBS for letting us have a chance to do it. And kudos to Caitlin Parrish and Erica Weiss, who were the two women who created the show. Mm-hmm. And really, it was their spirit that sort of fed the rest of us to realize that what is being put on screens and especially on screens in the most watched network there are fights you can't lose because once you lose them, you're losing the nature of the content and the messaging out there. And, and it, it's weird to realize there's fights that, I, you know, I've been on shows like Revenge and we'll fight over something. We'll realize like, OK, I guess you'll fuck them over this episode and not next episode. And fine. That's what that's the end of that fight. And so we have a dramatic commitment to it. But the loss isn't dangerous. Um, and maybe that's too melodramatic a word. But like in a sense, like the red line, there were fights that we had where we think. And not that and this is not me saying that the network is a bunch of people who are sort of predisposed to be against the ideas we were trying to tell, but they were conversations about race, about gender, about orientation, about representation, about religion. And everybody has ideas and everybody brings what they have to the table. But where we sat a lot of times were these ideas and, you know, and, and Caitlin and Erica put together such a brilliant room on yeah. this show. Um where we thought if we lose this battle, what's going to end up on a screen is something that we can't stand behind. Um, and, it, and it was kind of a really exciting place to be because it makes it so much clearer what you're trying to do. Because there isn't the idea of, okay, well, how to recover when we lose this one? And the fact is, and they also had wonderful suggestions for things that we were, I mean, the, the show was much better for the studio and the network, and I don't want to imply it wasn't, but there were certain conversations, and especially about race, where they were fights worth having. And, and I think that at the end of the day, those of you who get a chance to see the show will see that... I don't think we ever got polemic about sort of the ideas that we had, nor did we ever live in a fantasy liberal world in this show that, you know, it wasn't liberal Mm. wish fulfillment, but it was a liberal fulfillment of a wish to put this conversation on television. Yeah, I think that's important. And and even, you know, we were talking about genre and science fiction. I know you can't talk a lot about your new show, uh, Aaron and Kate, but the conversation we were having before we started rolling about this is a show that takes place five minutes into the future. Mm. Um, And what is your responsibility to talk about the present? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that we really wanted to do with this show when we we first started talking about it was five minutes into the future. Where are we going if things don't change? You know, how bad is it going to get without without presenting a show where it's too depressing to watch? (laughs) You know, so you still have people who are, you know, active and vibrant and doing things and creating things. I mean, even during the plague, people were still creating art and writing and, you know, making poetry. So you still have that. But you do really want to project these things into the future. What are the consequences of what's happening right now? And I think we can really show that um, through the stories that we're telling in that, you know, looking at things like the, you know, the border crisis, Mm -hmm. where are those kids going to be in 20 years? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I I think we do have an enormous responsibility, especially when you're doing genre, because genre is always a commentary on what's happening now. It's always Mm -hmm. been that way. So people think of it as wish fulfillment or, oh, it's something that is removed from who we are. Mm -hmm. And that's never, ever, ever been the case. It's always been about who we are. Um, I think one of the things, too, that's interesting is. Our show is in some ways a dystopia, but we call it a utopian dystopia (laughs) because you look at a show like The Walking Dead, you go, the apocalypse happened on this day. Then everything was gray. Then everybody was fighting zombies and society fell apart. But as we see what's happening in our entire, not just our country, but in the world, things are falling apart bit by bit. Mm -hmm. Things are falling off bit by bit and people are adjusting to them. They're adjusting to what the new normal is. So I think that's something that, especially when you're talking about genre reflecting what's happening now, that's something that we're really super conscious of doing on the show. 
That's that's really wow. smart, and I think it's it's been more forefront in the conversations. And, and I'm in genre too, and that like it feels like even when pitching, when developing, that's been in the front of the conversations. It's like it just can't be about robots running around anymore. <laughs> um, Shoshana, <laughs> as a staff writer on Doom Patrol, which deals with a lot of big issues and big ideas, yeah. mm-hmm. what did you see as your responsibility to give input, or what did you see as what you were allowed or not allowed to do? Because I know that was um, also a great room. Oh uh, yeah, definitely. I think I got really lucky with um, first of all just being getting onto Doom Patrol and then being on Doom Patrol um, because it is such a diverse room. So I feel like everyone has their stories and the characters are diverse as well. So we all get to kind of pour in yeah. our experiences. Um, for me, it was like, um, who am I as a woman of color, but also just a woman dealing with um, what it means to be. A woman in this landscape and I think a lot of our female characters like Rita and, and Jane go through a lot of that they deal with their traumas um their relationship to in the group and the and their relationship with men so um there's a lot there yeah. um did yeah. you let's talk about like nuts and bolts for a second mm-hmm. um this was your first staff job mm-hmm. What was surprising to you? I assume you've been listening to this podcast for 10 years, so you knew a lot of things <laughs> to expect. But what was surprising to you when you got into that room? Was Chris Dingus surprising to you? When you got <laughs> yes. <into> that room? <laughs> <laughs> surprising He's to amazing. everyone. <laughs> he makes it, like, I, it's, I have told him a couple of times that I'm just excited to go to work just to hear what he has to say. That um, he makes it just, I mean, it's a fun room and he makes it a lot more fun, definitely. Um, Chris is one of my closest friends. Oh, and great. they and you, came yeah. in with Stephanie's wife yeah. at this moment. So this is like a little moment of Chris and Steph love fest. That That's crazy. Yeah. We have heard many Chris Dingus stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things that he's kind of started as a joke in the room that's just found its way into the show. <laughs> you can feel that yeah. in the show, <laughs> knowing him and knowing the show. Um, I think what what kind of surprised me um, was mostly like Jeremy's willingness to kind of take a gamble on on someone who this is my first show and also um, the amount of support and um, I mean, I didn't get to write just one episode. I got to write four wow. and I got That's to, crazy. yeah. And I got to go to Atlanta, Atlanta and produce. And so it was really amazing that he, and he really believes in his, um, his team. Mm-hmm. Um, he gave Eric a writer's assistant an episode and it's beautiful. Right. Um, and so I feel like there was more of this camaraderie, more of this, um, people supporting each other and supporting growth with even the lower level writers. So um, I, I mean, in a lot of cases you hear horror stories about writers feeling like it's, you know, uh, it's everyone for themselves and stuff. So that was surprising in a good way. Yeah. That's really fantastic. And I feel like that's something I've been hearing more of in the past few years as sort of another generation of showrunners comes up. They're really looking out for Mm -hmm. rookie writers because that was them. Mm-hmm. They remember that and in a more visceral or immediate way. Um, and he was yeah. also really open to um, diverse casting mm-hmm. and diverse directors and getting more female directors yeah. um, on our show. So, um, I mean, it was, it's really a dream. Yeah. <laughs> That's great to hear. <laughs> I've been really lucky. Um, well, can I add to that for yeah. one second really quickly, though? It's, it's not just... Uh, the idea that we were once the rookie writer. Oh, actually, I always speak for myself. Mm-hmm. It's also that... You are far smarter than I was. I'm not joking. Like the it's things true, you know right? and the things you bring yeah. in as, you know, I'm, I'm 50 this year and there's a lot of things I do know and there's a lot 
that I don't. And there's a kind of necessity for a generational span in a room now yeah. because there's a million things I don't know that you do um, about yeah. culture or about technology, about anything. And so it's also like the world has changed enough in the 20s because most of the people that used to be me when I was me kind of came up the same way. And right. now the stories are different. And so actually the human beings in the room, to me at least, are far more exciting than they've ever been yeah. um, because they bring in these life experiences. And there's also the opportunity that someone's going to want to hear that. Um, so anyway, I think it's not just like I was once you. It's like I was never you. <laughs> um, and that to me is the exciting. That's such an interesting idea, though, that and this has never occurred to me to say in this way that like the last 15 years of television is so wildly different from the first 75 years yeah. of television oh, yeah. or 70 years of television. Yeah, I mean, when we got in, uh, nobody really was trying to do TV. Yeah. It wasn't a thing. And we, we started out thinking we were going to write features. We were wrong, but we started out that way. And when we got our job on Millennium, it was really more of a fluke than anything else. And we we literally knew nothing. I knew how to turn the television on and watch some shows, but we didn't know anything. And Morgan, we worked for Morgan and Wong, mm -hmm. who were the best mentors. And they had come up through Stephen Cannell. And Cannell was really all about teaching writers how to become producers because they didn't know anything. When they were going to their first meeting on a Cannell show, they were looking <laughs> through a script trying to figure out how many acts were in it. Sure. So they were very, because they started that way, they were very willing to help other people start that way. And they, Cannell really instilled in them and in other people who worked for him, you bring people up, you teach people mm -hmm. how to be producers. And they did that for us. And I, when I see that happening with newer writers, it just makes me so happy mm -hmm. because these writers are just going to be able to succeed that much easier because they've been actually mentored and taught. Because yeah, yeah. now it feels like there's a whole well there is a whole industry devoted to helping people figure right. out how to crack it and get in and there's so many different things i mean i think it, it's really confusing in a way because there are so many programs mm -hmm. so many podcasts so many classes you can go to so many only a couple of legit podcasts and Let's then there's some other but, lousy exactly. ones but it's seriously like an industry and you see people who are dedicating every waking moment to figuring out how do i do this how do i break yeah. in and that absolutely wasn't around when we were starting out not at all it was just sort of absolutely. like oh we're writing tv now <laughs> it literally was that. Um, I'm curious to hear if if you can remember uh, about that millennium situation and like that was a good show and that was, was a good did show. It go two seasons three we three were seasons. on for the final two seasons yes. okay um, so it was, have they figured things out by the time you all came in what kind of a, a machine did you walk into and oh. what, again what did you see as your roles there yeah we walked into the 1013 Chris Carter machine yeah. they had it all figured out um, it was the first year when we came in um, season two of Millennium it was the first year they were moving X-Files to Los Angeles so Millennium just got that crew Huh. And there weren't a it's ton a of shows. There were shows shooting in Vancouver, but there weren't that many. Yeah. So we had the best crew, <laughs> literally the best crew. They were amazing. And they already had this sort of, this is how we make TV shows. And it worked great. Mm -hmm. We, uh, it was not this way in X-Files, but we, um, we always had scripts before prep. We were never behind. We were never over budget. Um, that was really great. I mean, it was really great to come into that to see how it actually works as opposed to coming in and going, oh, this is how it doesn't work. Okay, but how does it right. work? Like what, yeah. how do you actually make a TV show competently? Yeah, well, so what, what, I'm curious to hear what specific things you took from that experience that sort of stayed with you that you could then apply as you moved up through the ranks and are, are running your own show. 
Uh, I mean, one thing was interesting. We went to our our second show and went, oh God. And it, it was, we had an amazing room. Our showrunners were fantastic, but we had, you know, the studio and the network were just not on the same page about the show. And so we went, well, that's the first lesson. And then kind of as you move on and work with other showrunners, you start to realize when we worked with Morgan and Wong, we always felt like they hadn't planned out every beat of the season, but they had figured out where they wanted to go. They knew we're going to do a two-parter here and here. At this point, this is when this character is going to go crazy. And then here's our ending. And we stuck to that, but we could come in and pitch kind of anything to and them. We and we literally <laughs> did pitch anything to them. Um, so I, I think what we took from that is sort of the flexibility of how they uh, break a season. Um so they don't, it's not rigid. It's not, you know, we've got to do here and here and here. Mm -hmm. And we were on shows later where things were really plotted out. And then you realize, well, we actually have to move all this stuff up because we don't have enough story. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. people who were just in their minds rigidly thinking, okay, well, but we had it figured out. Now what do we do? So there was a little more panic about that. Yeah, so it was just the ease with which they kind of, shepherded the story process. Well, it seemed like they were open to that improvisation that you need when you're working with a room that you like working with. Um, Sunil, you came up under Tom Fontana. Is that right? Yep. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and like learning under this guy who was one of the, is one of the best. Yeah. I, I was very, very, very fortunate. Um, and sort of like what you guys are just talking about is, and, and what you just described also is that I always makes me happy. And I realized I was one of the lucky people too. When your first experience in television is a good one, it proves to you it can exist. <laughs> um, as opposed to many, many people who probably listen to this who think, when is that going to happen? And mm -hmm. so that's how bad habits get perpetuated because you just think, I guess this is how it is. And mm -hmm. so I'm going to come into every room ready to fight mm -hmm. and ready to defend myself. And when you find yourself in your ideally your first place to think, oh, I already know it can be better. And when I have a chance to make it that way, and Tom, for me, was the person who taught me that um, mm -hmm. and, and who's taught everybody who works with him that. And I got lucky because... I started as assistant the day Oz got picked up to series. And the way Tom works is he gets up at five in the morning, which is now <laughs> what I do. Um, but he writes longhand and brings what he does down to the assistant. So essentially, I got on board right when I got to watch this person create the first drama for HBO. Longhand, on a daily basis, and then watch him learn how to produce it. And he said the same thing to me about pr producing. Is he? I remember when he made me a writer on the show, and he said... A lot of contracts just sort of you stay X number of years and you get producer in your title. He's like, I will not make those contracts because I need to teach you how to produce first and I will do that. Um, and he did that. And so I find myself blessed that this is where I happen to start out. And also, you know, there's a lineage of his former assistants that you're like, I'll be damned if I'm the one who fucks this up. Um, because like he teaches the people really well and the things they go on to do are really extraordinary. And you just want to like, you want to honor that. And uh, and so I felt very fortunate that I also at the same time, you know, come coming up, I had people who taught me how to do it and do it with kindness and mm -hmm. to do it with uh, encouragement and to do it with like great skill. Um, so that was my story. So let me ask you all, you've all had uh, production experience and it seems like that's been a big part of the learning process for you uh, on everything, on the early stuff you worked on, especially. Um, I do not have a lot of that experience. The shows I worked on did not send writers to set or, and I worked in animation for a few years. So what do I need to know? My pilot's going to get made. What do I need to know? <laughs> Wow. Uh, I'm well, so here's something that's a little bit radical. 
um, when we were working for Morgan and Wong, they did not send writers to set. And it was sort of early days before, because there was a point where that wasn't kind of a thing, but their feeling was you're, you're a writer, you're needed to write. Um, The most important thing about production were the last three days of prep when you're on the tech scout and production meeting and, and tone meeting and editing. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's the thing that I've seen people freak out over dailies we sat in editing for all three of our episodes that year and Morgan and Wong are literally geniuses at it. <laughs> they can save anything. And we learned how to save things and we learned how to look at something that seemed like a disaster and, and find a way to make it not a disaster. Mm-hmm. So I think that as far as that goes, don't freak out. <laughs> you see something <laughs> yes. that, you, you know, they didn't do coverage or they didn't, you know, mm-hmm. shoot this right or whatever. You can fix basically everything in post. Yeah. What One of the things they taught us was your your editor is your best friend, mm-hmm. your editor. Editor, I think that's one thing that people, a lot of people don't get is just how important the editor is, getting good editors. And we've been saved so many times by editors. They're the best. Um, and I think they don't get enough credit for what they do because you're rebuilding the story sometimes mm-hmm. in the yeah. in the room. I mean, yeah, we've all seen that where it's just like, thank God for the editor. He can figure out how to put this together or what yeah. piece we need. So that was another thing we got from them because we were always there watching it. Mm-hmm. It's it's great advice. And again, you're right. It's not something we hear very often. Um, Shoshana, you just had this experience. Um, tell me about producing for the for the first time. I know you had done short films and stuff too on your own. Is that right? Um, yes. Um, just in New, in New Zealand when I, you know, in undergrad. So yeah. it doesn't really count. Well, but it's, <laughs> still, you know, you're in there, you're doing yeah, it. You know yeah. a few things. So tell me about, mm-hmm. uh, about producing your episodes. Uh, it was a lot of trial by fire. Mm-hmm. So... Um, which I, I, the first episode I wrote was episode two and landing there and then just dealing with these actors that I, I've like always looked up to and watched <laughs> on the screen. So that was kind of crazy and telling them, yes or no, you can't change that line or yes, I will work. <laughs> wow. I'll work your ideas in and I'm sweating and running back and forth and the 15 hour days. Yeah, it was it was crazy, but um, I actually really learned to love it. Mm-hmm. I, it. As stressful as it is for a writer to be in that kind of an environment, um, because we all just rather just be alone writing. <laughs> we don't want to be in that like you know um, hot seat. Um, but it was really fun, and and when you get a really collaborative director, mm-hmm. you get to um, really kind of discuss and find and discover a lot of the story together, and discover and learn things about the actors. And you get to, and if you have really receptive actors as well, um, talking about the characters together just gives you more ideas, more, yeah, it's, it was all that collaborative aspect was really, really fun and interesting. That's great. Yeah. That's cool. Um, Sunil, the same question, you know, is the way that you saw Fontana produce early on on Oz, is that what you do, how has your how has that style changed for you over the years? Um, I think it is kind of what I do, honestly, mm-hmm. because it really works. And, and that's the funny thing about this industry is the nature of producing a thing, except for the technology that changes. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. It's a bunch of people <laughs> got to get in a room, come up with a script that everybody likes, then prep that script, shoot that script and edit that script. And there, there's, there's no changing that curriculum. So in some ways, if you learn how to do that correctly, there's adaptions that have to be made. And I, you know, and you guys work, the one thing I've never worked with is heavy VFX. Like that's oh. a thing that I know is not in my arsenal that one day I want to learn because I don't know how to account for that. And the thing 
things that you guys are doing. And I'm like, it's a real deficit for me. Um, but honestly, the way that Tom taught me how to do it, you know, I mean, he had certain things. And again, you alluded to it, too, is like, you know, he always said, if you don't have a script on the first day of prep, what that says to everyone else working on the show is you also don't have to do your job <laughs> um, as hard as you, we would like Smart. you to do it. And it just yeah. always stayed with me because it's like it is your job to make sure you're working mm -hmm. hard enough and efficiently enough and creatively enough that you have that script to say, here, we're putting 100% of our effort and we ask the same from you. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a thing that has always, always, always stayed with me and has been a very, you know, a paramount importance to me and also to make sure in the same way that Tom did it that you're not doing that by making your writing staff stay for dinner and work on weekends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and those, you know, and those are hard things to do. And especially then when you become a showrunner, you take a lot, you're like, I'm going to take that on myself so that the other people can do it. But you know what? That's the job ultimately. And it's not, you know, but it is, it's really, he taught me all of those things and he showed me like it can work. And this can feel like a family that is making a show as opposed to a bunch of people who are working together, making a show. <laughs> and that's like the dream of television, really. Yeah. Imagine you're meeting Shoshana a year ago, probably a year and a half ago. Uh, what is the advice you would give her going into her first room? And what is the advice you would give yourself two years ago? Um, it, this is really terrible advice, but... <laughs> oh, that's definitely well, what we want. So one of the things that I know writers are told in writers programs and, and what have you is don't, don't talk too much. And I think... That's the trickiest part is trying to figure out how vocal should I be mm -hmm. in the room? And I mean, personally, if I'm working with a first time writer and they are really quiet, I go, I totally get it. Mm -hmm. I, I think it would be just listen, chime in when you have something to say, don't be afraid to make your opinion known. Honestly, that's the advice. And I think some people obviously go overboard with it. And mm -hmm. you, you, but then you say, you know, maybe just adjust a little bit and just kind of take it in. But I think it's just no, I think also know that you're there because you have earned that job. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing. You're not a fraud. It's not charity. You, you <laughs> belong there. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would have been my advice as well. I immediately that came to me besides like don't you don't have to eat all the snacks. Um, <laughs> and, Probably the most you important. will gain 10 pounds <laughs> over a season um, is yeah, just for me, I think being braver with your ideas mm -hmm. and um, if something's not working, being vocal mm -hmm. about why and your suggestions and mm -hmm. stuff like that because it just at the end of the day, it might come back around and that might be the idea that sticks and that might be the fix that sticks. And there's no point kind of wasting that, that time. Was yeah. that a learning curve for you on this show? And how did you figure out to be bolder with your ideas? Um, I think just encouragement and also seeing like um, just I, I pitch something or I think of something to pitch rather. And then... Um, I wouldn't say it. And then that was kind of the fix in the end, you know, kind of thing, <laughs> something like that. Um, and I think we've all been through that. I, I grew up, um, kind of being more of a listener and not kind of, you know, so I, I'm definitely more that person, um, not very vocal at the table to, to begin with. But then once you kind of get to know everyone and, you know, you're, you know, kind of all in the same yeah. boat trying to figure out the same story, then yeah, you kind of, yeah, there's a comfort level and, yeah. and sort of reading the room. Um, before we, we get to you, I want, before we get too far from this, um, I found it easier having a partner to figure out like what that dynamic is in the room. 
I'm curious to hear about your early experiences oh, yeah. and figuring out what each of you does or or when the talking happens or doesn't happen or who talks when. I, this, so one of the things that's good about having a partner is if something weird is going on in the room, <laughs> you can look at your writing partner and, yeah. and you can go, like, is it just me? <laughs> no, it's not, in fact, just me. Right. Something weird is happening here. Um, I mean, I think we're pretty individual in the way that we uh, approach the room. So we don't team up or anything like that. Um, there are things that we love that are the same. There are ideas that we just both would be like, if somebody said, what do you think about an ancient manuscript? We would go, absolutely. <laughs> let's put that in here. Yeah. I think for me, the hardest thing actually, when we started working together and having a pitch in the room is if you said something I didn't agree with, yeah. and then I would have to be like, um, actually, I think, what if it's this? And then I would shatter down. Yeah, and yeah. then it would, be, it would get brutal. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's funny because it's, it's, you sort of start out feeling like you have this kind of loyalty to your writing partner and then you have to realize, no, it's, it's about the room and it's yeah. about the big mm. picture. Yeah. It's a loyalty to the story. Really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if something doesn't work, you say so, you yeah. know. It makes sense. Um, and Sunil, what was the first, was Oz the first room you ran uh, as a writer or was it? Yeah, Oz it didn't like really have a room so much. I mean, oh, you right? know, there was basically Tom and then myself and um, one other writer usually. And there were eight episodes. And so I think we would just talk generally about the season and kind of go off and write and then keep reconvening. And so oh, I didn't really nice. know a room until we did the show for UPN called The Beat. Mm -hmm. um, which was a, a bold attempt at a cop show that starred Mark Ruffalo, actually. And then I, you oh, know, and I actually really love the show, but I do think... Boy, did Mark Ruffalo's career get saved because that show was not successful. Because <laughs> uh, if he'd been on that for the next five years, oh, none yeah. of those other things And UPN, I mean, UPN. Oh, we, we've been there. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, it was an experiment. But they let us try the thing. But it was, yeah. you know, it was great being in a room. And I think to sort of what you were just talking about, Shoshana, it's, it's weird because I still have this happen in rooms where I'm like, I think a thing and then I don't say it. And then the mm -hmm. thing gets pitched. Mm -hmm. and you're like, yeah. and, and the weird thing I realized, at least I feel for me, is like, Oh, that's great. It means I'm speaking the right language. Like there's a yeah. validation in the hesitation. I think it's actually a part of the process as opposed mm -hmm. to like the self-recrimination. Like, oh, if I just said that, like the point to me more is like, okay, great. Like I'm thinking in a way that solves the problems of this show. And so that mm -hmm. then you start speaking it more because you have a confidence that mm -hmm. like, I do speak this language and that's I have true. great things to say in this language. And I think actually those moments at least have always been for me not so much like, oh, I wish I'd said it. It's more like, hey, I might have said that too. And I'm actually mm -hmm. speaking this show. And there's to me something really exciting about that. Um, and I think that like a lot of those first room experiences, I wanted to ask you, was there something people told you that was completely wrong when you entered your first room situation? I'm just like, was there advice like, don't do this or this is gonna happen? You're like, that so did That's not funny. happen. I'm gonna have to think of Okay, yeah. I was curious, I was curious like really what advice people are getting going in. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's really the talking thing. Like that's the it, thing that is the major thing. Yeah. It seems to and me. Yeah. Don't sulk if your idea gets shot down. Because oh, yeah. we've seen that a we've couple of times that. where the arms get folded and the person leans back and they don't want to participate anymore that Ooh. day. And you're like, no, that's oh, no. not yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't don't do that. Oh no, that's yeah, so don't, awkward. don't take it personally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Obviously, yeah. obviously mm -hmm. sometimes you're working for a monster. Um, but most of the time you're not working for a monster yeah. and just don't take it personally. And I think that's one of the things that happened uh, because of the Writers Guild agency situation is people started doing the staffing boost on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So assistants and lower level writers and people of color and women would give their scripts to people and they'd read them and then they come on Twitter and they go, this is fantastic. So somebody was reading scripts from assistants and read a script by an assistant and gave this assistant notes and that those were not received well. 
and the assistant got threatening and nasty and you have got to learn how to be criticized. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so important. And at first, of course, you take it personally because it's something you wrote or something you thought Mm of, but it's not personal and you've got to not do that. Do not threaten somebody who offered to read your script, please. (laughs) Well, this is, this job is such a, a combination of, Needing to have an enormous ego mm-hmm. and needing to have no ego whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. It's right? true. So tell me about navigating that. I mean, I always, so we've been on a lot of first year shows, like 157 <laughs> first year shows. Notorious like show killers. Oh my God, we, we are. are. You are not. We, we killed UPN. I mean, we killed whole networks before. So um, the, w- the first thing that happens is, you know, you get in the room and you go, oh, I hope I have things to say. And then you do. And then it's when you write your first script and you go, well, this is it. They're finally going to find out we're frauds. Hmm. We're going to turn this in and they're going to say, how did you ever get hired in this business? I think every writer has imposter syndrome to, mm-hmm. well, some don't, but <laughs> a lot do though, people. yeah. But even like we worked with Darren Morgan, who is a stone cold genius and he has imposter syndrome. Yeah. But I think it is. It's just finding that, you know, you because you do have that. It's, it's, it's a struggle. It's between, but you know, I'm just at the end of the day, believing I have good ideas. I've been doing this for a long time. I do know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about, but there is always that, you know, insecurity. I think all writers have it. Mm-hmm. I think, well, I think everyone has it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. We just put it out there for people yeah. to comment on. <laughs> yeah. Every time Jeremy would be like, so why did you write this? I'd be like, oh, I don't, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, it's terrible, <laughs> but it's like, no, it's good. And I want to know why, you know, what, yeah. like, what's behind this and. It's hard for us to not be modest. It Mm. really is. It's like we're just waiting to be kicked, which is not even remotely (laughs) reality. As long as you stay off Twitter. Yeah. (laughs) But but it is kind of true. And I think it would be helpful, I think especially for women, Mm -hmm. to own our talent. Mm -hmm. And I don't think – I mean, I certainly have moments where I'm just like, oh, it's just this thing. Mm. And using the word just is – insidious and we do it all the time and we were taught to do it. So I think it is about us not thinking, oh, they're going to think I'm bragging. So what? Mm -hmm. Just owning it. Sort of the same question, but as applied to show running. Uh, The question we had asked Shoshana about, you know, what do you wish you had known? Um, Sunil, you're now, is this your third show that you're running? So yeah, the show I'm I'm working on called All Redline is done. I'm now on All Rise, co-running with Greg Spottiswood. who I also just want to say, like, and he again approaches this in the way that we're talking about, you know, when we were hiring the assistants in the office, he would ask them what they like about the process of writing, understand they wanted to be writers, and then really made it clear to them, which I was happy with, because we did the same thing on the red line. And I feel like I'm hearing it more and more, which is also nice, is that obviously these human beings who are assistants are here because they have a brain in their head, and they will be happy to do the job that they have taken. But there's smart people who get to be involved in the process. And so all the assistants in our office who are magnificent people are like in the rooms with us every day and contributing. And so I also think there's something really encouraging about the nature of that. And it helps because it invests them in the show that you're getting mm-hmm. to do. And they have incredible ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's that tricky thing that we never want to sort of like, it's clear they never have to contribute. We never want to steal from them. But I mean, show running, it's, it's tricky because you just kind of have to do it and figure it out. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, people can tell you about it and it's, it's like, it's a wonderful misery. Well, let's, uh, see, show running let's, let's see if um, we can take some yeah. of it apart a little bit. Sure. Um, 
Erin and Kate, is this show, this Netflix show you're doing, the first show running? This job is the you're first doing? show we're running on okay. our own. That's yeah, that's what I had hoped. So yeah. we can tie it in. Um, <laughs> What do they need to know? Uh, and Shoshana, having worked on a great show for a great showrunner, and Jeremy Carver is absolutely a great showrunner, um, what can you tell what people who are running their own show? And I, to the same question, shows you have worked on, what have you learned from great showrunners? Uh, you know, despite having worked on a bunch of one-season shows, <laughs> I'm sure you had great showrunners oh, in yeah. there. What, what do you take from them that you can apply? Um, but Sunil, let's, let's start with you, having done this a few times. What do they need to know? What might not they? What might they not be ready for? Right. I mean, I, I guess those are two very different questions. And I think having had the actually, I was fortunate enough to sit with them when they were first starting this. And so, what I can say from my sense of them then and now is, you don't need to know anything more than you guys already did. Like you guys are ready. To do this. You know, the flip side is, what's going to happen? I have no idea. You know? And everything has its own specific thing. But it, it's that you know, when people ask me what it's like to be. A showrunner, the analogy that I always use is think the head coach of a professional sports team because you are responsible for everything that happens on the field, all the personnel that gets the team on the field. You are also responsible for keeping the owners happy, the advertising, the stadium happy, keeping the stadium running and making sure you're the face of the thing, even though you're not actually in charge, but you're in charge of what is presented through. And so it's this weird fulcrum point is that you're sort of. The head of, you're the head person on the field, but you're also the only person on the field who's dealing with all the things that aren't there. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a lot. And it's also, you know, for me, it's a very, um, and I'm sure people have said this a million times on the show, but it's super unnatural for someone who started as a writer to think I just want to be in a room by myself to be like, be a business person, be a diplomat, yeah. mm -hmm. be a manager and do all these things at the same time while keeping a kind of creative idea and inspiration. And it's exhausting. It's an exhausting job. And the critical, critical thing and where I have always been very, very blessed is, and I think Jeremy had this from what I've heard about everyone who worked on Doom Patrol, which you guys I'm sure are doing now, is take care in creating your staff so that you can really lean on them because you are going to need these human beings to be with you on this. If it becomes a divisive thing where it's just you think there are a bunch of people working for you. You're dead in the water and the show's dead in the water. And, and it's a bad time, you know? And when I was on Revenge or Body of Proof or Redline and this show, it's it's been the blessing is it's hard in the best of times. And so try to mitigate to make it the best of times for everybody there. That's the advice that I can give. That's great advice. Yeah. 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 That seems to me to be kind of um, something that I want to learn. And I think that, I, you know, as a writer, you'd have to learn to become a showrunner is to be able to trust um, and to know when to say yes or no, or I need help. Um, and it all starts with building that, mm -hmm. that team. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm always so impressed with, um, how showrunners could have an aerial view of everything mm. and all the moving parts. I think that's <laughs> daunting and amazing. Um, and I don't have no idea how you guys yeah, do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about putting together, cause you're, you have a room now, yes, right? Yeah. You put together a room. How many people did you end up with? Uh, how many people do we have? Four other writers? Five other writers. Five other okay. writers. For like yeah. 10 episodes, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, where did they come from? Who did you read? What were you, were you looking for anything specific? Were you responding to specific things? Well, we really wanted genre people who, because it's a kind of complicated show that has a lot of various genre aspects. It's not only kind of a science fiction show, but it's also a horror show. So, you know, just finding all of these people that you, who's our horror person, you know, maybe you only have one. Um, and it was actually kind of tricky because it, it was right when the whole agency thing happened. Mm -hmm. So where are these people coming from? They're not coming from agents for the most yeah. part. So it, we we did actually do some Twitter reading. We did right. some, um, got some stuff from management company, you know, with mo most of, I, I would say were probably coming from managers, yeah. but it's just reading a lot of scripts. Um, 
finding people who you, either you respond to the voice in the script or you just respond to their, you know, storytelling. It's really it's it's sort of like an instinctive reaction that I have to a script. Mm-hmm. I read something and it doesn't have to be perfect, but I can go, oh, I like this person's voice. This person gets it. This person mm-hmm. has this point of view that I want to bring in. And then, you know, working with our partners at Hellfire who were fantastic and were bringing us amazing people. They were, oh, we want you to meet with these five people, you know, and, yeah, and they just think, brought us an incredible think, group to, I think to select first, from. Either the first day or the first two days uh, we hired, we knew we wanted to two writers that we met very early on and they're in our room and and it's interesting just because it has to be a a good blend of personalities too Mm -hmm. and i think we've all been in rooms where it's not and it's not saying that that somebody's bad mm-hmm. because they don't fit in. It, they just don't fit in. Yeah. And there's a chemistry. There's an yeah. alchemy. People those. do talk about casting the writer's yeah. room and, and it is kind of really something that you do. Yeah. And we really kind of went from who who we were thinking of that we wanted before we even started the process. And then those two writers that we knew we wanted. So it kind of became from there. We went, okay, this is sort of the personality of our room. And mm. we Those are the people we got. I mean, we have, everybody is fantastic and they all already are, are meshing and it's very kind of giving, you know, people are listening, people are coming up with other ideas off of what other writers are saying. So it, I think, I think we, we were nervous about doing it, but I think at least so far until they all decide to get together and kill us in the night, (laughs) I think, uh, I think we really, we succeeded and we're really, really happy with that. That's great. Um, I love that. The personality of the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, It's really important. Yeah. 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 I mean, we, early on, we we talked about like you're putting together this sort of baseball team and mm-hmm. people do different things. I think that's that's changed, but is the same. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's not a helpful comment. Um, <laughs> it is true, though. I mean, like we were just talking about, you need, you know, who's our who's our horror person who knows yeah. about AI, yeah. who knows about this stuff and then that's also can that. write and also can, you know, bring in mm-hmm. that as part of a story. Yeah. So so it is. It's a lot of moving pieces. And, yeah. and you hope that you find people who can bring all those things in. And you also want this sort of team mentality yeah, absolutely. where certainly people have different personalities, but you're moving towards the same goal right. and you can all sort of click into place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Neil, what has been, you don't even have to name it if you don't want to, what has been the most challenging room you've been in? The most challenging room. Um, well, this might sound like a dodge of the question, but the I'll most t- challenging room I've been in was the season that I, you know, I joined Revenge, uh, which was this sort of mm-hmm. frothy smart soap on ABC <laughs> for a few years. And I joined it in season two uh, and then actually took over the show in season three. Right. And, you know, I think a lot of the fans of the show felt that maybe the serialization had gone in the wrong direction in season two. And so the most challenging room was actually not about the room being challenging at all. Mm-hmm. The most challenging room I've ever been in was a group of us who had to then take this serialization, did this highly serialized show based on a whisper thin premise um, <laughs> and figure out how to turn this ship around. And, and that wow. season, and I will say I'm extremely proud of the work that this group of people did um, and that I got to contribute to them That's doing funny. because it was it was just sort of like, how do you do that when you've gone in some people's estimations, 22 hours in the wrong direction. Um, how do you turn that around? And so I have to say, like, that was by far the most challenging um, situation uh, because it felt incredibly daunting. But I was really blessed to be in a great room that was able to do this thing. I remember talking to some um, revenge writers at the time, um, and I, I wasn't very familiar with the show, right. but the idea of doing a 22 episode, highly serialized show, which really, this was very new for that kind of serialization, mm-hmm. seems so daunting to me. What were the, 
conversations in the room. Like, how do you even break that those stories? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's sort of you you. It's very hard. I mean, it, it really is. And it's a, it's a brutal thing to come up with 22 hours of serialized drama every year. And it ends up leading to not the greatest of dramas because there's only so many cards you can turn over before you start topping yourself with the ridiculous. And right. so it was, you know, I mean, end of season three, I think we sort of pulled out all the stops not knowing if we got a season four. And to our credit, we did well enough. They're like, congratulations, you get 22 more hours. And it really was those conversations of... How do we keep this vital without losing steam over 22 episodes? And it was really, really hard. And, you know, and I'll frankly admit that you find these sort of three episode diversions that accomplish one thing you need for the final thing, Mm -hmm. but that you're going to take three episodes to get there and you're going to put in these other characters because... You do, honestly. You have to make it look like you're not treading water. Um, And so it is hard to fill that content. And sometimes you nail it and you find a new story. And sometimes you think, oh, that was like a little three-episode diversion. And now we're back to the story we're telling. But no, it's it's hard. And especially, again, when it is such a specific premise that this young woman has come back to get revenge on these two people. (laughs) That's it. And you're like, okay, we got 89 hours in. (laughs) Which is ridiculous. Uh, But, you know, but it is, again, a testament to these rooms that somehow... You figure it out. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, and then you see shows like The Good Place and you're like, and you can be brilliant oh on God. a weekly basis. And like, they've kind of, to their credit, they're extraordinary. And to their discredit, they're screwing the rest of us. Because exactly. they're like, look, they can do this every week. They can recreate a thing you didn't expect. Yeah. Like, oh, it's I know. Hard. It makes know, me so angry. No, I don't get it. No, it's, it's, so it's only 21 and a half minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's only 13 episodes. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so. Okay, yes. So then, I mean, if, if Revenge were created now, it absolutely would be 10 episodes. Yeah, it would be. And, which is know, what Mike Kelly was saying. Seasons. Exactly. Yeah. And it would be the tighter storytelling that you could yeah. do. But... We didn't have that at the time. That's so crazy. Um, yeah. Uh, have, what are these serialized shows you two have worked on? And tell me about breaking those shows. Uh, um, you worked on a bunch, right? We we have worked on a bunch that that I don't think did we ever get to actually complete one no. of them, like complete <laughs> the la- a story. The last one we worked on was a show called Freakish, which was for Hulu, which was mm-hmm. actually really fun. It was we came on second season. Um, it was basically Breakfast Club with zombies, and these kids are trapped in this high school, and it was very serialized. That's so fun. It was really Why don't fun. I know about the show. I, well, I know. Like, this is for me. It, yeah. it's, it, it was really fun to work on. We had this great group that was this cast that was half actors and half influencers and everybody was great and um that one was was hard because we had such a compressed time frame so Mm. you do really have to think about what logically could really be happening i know that the the studio con it kind of wanted us to push these you know the romances and the relationships Mm. much faster than we were doing like it's the same afternoon or it's (laughs) two days later this morning you know, so you do really have to think about when when you're doing something serialized. What is your time frame? Because if you have too compressed a time frame, it can be really tricky to push as much story forward. Personal stories. Yeah, yeah we did. We also worked on the first season of Scream, and it was the same thing. Yeah. Where yeah. well, plus whole, everyone was going to die. Yeah, <laughs> but the whole and you didn't know who the killer was. The whole season took place over a couple of weeks, so right. it, they, you can't really give MTV their romance when yeah. first of all. It takes place over a couple of weeks. Second of all, there's a killer running around killing people. <laughs> I, yeah, I remember hearing that a lot from that. It's like, yeah. why is this not? And that was a big struggle on the show. It's like, why is this not foremost of every conversation? Exactly. There's a murderer on the loose. Yeah. Why are people still going to parties? Right, yeah. right, exactly. <laughs> but then you want them to go to parties. Uh, yeah. It was just, so, so that was, yeah. And that, there was just that sort of push and pull. It was very, very it's difficult tough. to do. Um, yeah, I mean, like there is this question about I don't know, like for the shows that are released weekly and this passage of time, 
real time passing with time on the show not passing, right? Is yeah. how much can you sort of stretch the realism of relationships, of, of growth, of emotional growth, whatever it is with your characters? Um, I feel like this is something that you've had to face a lot. This feels like it's something that you must have faced uh, on a bunch of these shows. Well, I think that's true. I think especially in the age of streaming where people are just binging shows or even saving them up on Netflix and then binging them. Um, before, it, it when it just aired weekly, it was – I think storytelling was just a lot slower because yeah. it had to be because people wouldn't know where the hell they were or what was – I mean, I still have that problem with shows where I go, what? <laughs> what happened last season? I mean, I watch Riverdale and they do <laughs> literally everything in the world on that yeah. show. And sometimes I'll be like, oh, that's right. There was a cult. <laughs> um, but it, it, I think that storytelling has changed because of streaming and because of yeah. binging. It's definitely, it's become so much more serialized and not just serialized, but throwing everything in there. Yeah. You don't save anything now. It's just no. like, you have an idea. Don't save it for episode eight. Do it now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, and I think this is good and bad. Yeah. You know, like it, it makes us create new ideas faster. It's true. And I think it's more exciting for viewers in a lot of ways, but. You know, and also there's something to the the slow rollout of a story. Yeah. And I think like one of the shows that I'm really loving now is Years and Years on HBO. Oh and it's it's very serialized, but it is not a compressed timeline by any stretch of the yeah. imagination. They will literally go years between episodes. Wow. So you're sort of reintroduced to these characters, but it's just done so well that you know exactly where you are with them. So I, I love that they can do that, that we're not just all going to be compressed timelines. And mm -hmm. um, it's yeah. just, it's, it's too, it's too hard to do. And I think it's exhausting the viewers too. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. To the whole like saving stuff, like that, that was a lot of the conversation with Doom Patrol. Um, and we, because we're leading on um, Grant Morrison's run, mm -hmm. these comic books mm -hmm. and, and, there are fans of the comic books already. They're, they have this expectation of what they want to see right away. Um, and it sometimes it's kind of a balancing act between like pay, paying that off and, and giving them the, you know, that character that we know that they're going to be wanting so, so badly to see, but also figuring out when do we pull back and, you know, hopefully we'll have more seasons to tell that story and therefore more time. Yeah. And yeah, I, that, that's always something I kind of wonder about with writers and their relationships with fans. And, mm -hmm. you know, what is, what do you feel is your kind of um, duty to, to that, yeah, to, to the fan base and what they want to see and um, versus your kind of pace with the story. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, what has been your experience with that? Well, it's like Caitlin, uh, one of the women who created the Red Line is one of my close friends now, has a really interesting thought to that idea. She's like, what if Twitter had been around at the time of Cheers or these oh, other shows that you love? And, and how would that have affected <laughs> this mm -hmm. thing? Because there wasn't that feedback. Yeah. There wasn't mm -hmm. a kind of both an honoring of your fan base and sometimes an attack from your fan base yeah. <laughs> based on these things. And it is, and it does change the nature of how it happens. And especially when you're, you know, the thing that's fascinating to me also is working on properties that exist already. Mm -hmm. You know, like mm -hmm. I think about even when, you know, my kids are going to see the Harry Potter movies, they already know the story. Like when I saw yeah. the Star Wars movies, I had no idea what no. was about to happen. Yeah. And so there's a really different thing that you're already being held to a different medium mm -hmm. um, to either match it or achieve it or whatever. And I just, I think that's like a fascinating different reality than I grew up in. But I just think <laughs> it's, it's hard because there's an immediacy to it. And, and, 
And speaking to things like the compression of time, it, it really feels to me like it's also what tone you want to hit with your show. Mm -hmm. You know, like like the red line is my most immediate example. Like this show took place in this world. Right. And, and we were really cognizant of the fact that if something rang false in a TV way, mm -hmm. we're done. Mm -hmm. We're done. The second you say to them, like, this isn't the real world, because mm -hmm. that wouldn't actually happen. This is happening because we're in episode four of episode eight, and we need to get this together for this reason. And we thought if it feels like that for even a moment, the whole show is sort of blown yeah. mm -hmm. because you now don't have to believe any of the things you've seen mm -hmm. yet because that just doesn't make any sense in the real world. And so, you know, and so I'm sure like as you guys are approaching it, you need this to feel like the feet are on the ground in this real world. Yeah. And so yeah. if they're asking to you to grounded. compress time, yeah. 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 you're like, I'm going to lose the faith of the people that are watching this because right. the rules don't apply. You yeah. want the audience to trust you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So they stay with you. Yeah. And whether you're directly interacting with fans on Twitter or anywhere else, which we don't really do a lot of, but I think um, I just want to give a show that's respectful that's honest where mm -hmm. you're you're not lying to the fans you're not tricking them you're not suddenly just throwing in a story that makes no sense because you think that's what they want we need yeah. a twist mm -hmm. or you know i think it's just about telling the best story that you can tell you know and and um i'm not necessarily going to be going online and finding out well do they like this relationship <laughs> no. or not because it's I'll, like i'll let you know yeah. <laughs> it's best not to yeah, exactly. it's best not, not to yeah, you know no. because yeah. you're especially when people are watching it and you you know what's going to happen and you know like you can't right. just make a u-turn because these mm -hmm. two people want you know they want these two people to get together or not be together or whatever it's going yeah, to be you I can't mean, just and you I can't think, deal with and that and i think too like with with swamp thing what's hard is that there are three episodes nobody's going to see. Mm. And we can't really go, hey, so here's what was going to happen in these three episodes. And it's it that's actually really painful because just based on how people are reacting to the show, people this would have been yeah. so satisfying for them yeah. to see where we were taking these characters. And with that, you know, we just tried to, and Mark Verheiden, who, um, who was running the show and um, we just really wanted to bring episode 10, which was now the finale, to a satisfying conclusion as much as possible. So we did go back in and, you know, do some rewriting and some reshooting because even though it wasn't our fault, the show got canceled. You want to leave the people who are enjoying the show with some sense of closure for, for at least mm -hmm. some of these stories. Right. So hopefully, you know, people will see that and go, okay, well, and that was very, being very mindful of the people that were going to be watching the show. You know, let's, let's give them something. Yeah. As yeah we're a long we way can. from the days. I feel like when we came up watching television and a show would just disappear halfway. And like, this was a Chris Carter curse too. Like he yeah. had a couple of shows yeah. that just went away. And I was like, I love this. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> no closure. And there's no, you can't really go on the internet right now. Things just disappear. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. um, this is great. Uh, you are this uh, dare I say one of the best groups we've had in a long oh, time. Um, we do have to wrap up though, uh, and we will do so by asking what you're watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your room, your loved ones, your friends? Let's start with you, Kay. Oh dear. Well, I mentioned um, Years and Years, mm -hmm. which I think everybody should watch. Yeah, and our it, room is obsessed with it. Really? Yes, <laughs> okay. it is. It's sort of a secular Handmaid's Tale in a way, mm. um, but it's just not as it doesn't put push the envelope as much, but you will recognize a lot of things in it. Emma Thompson's in it. So there you go. What? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Emma this is the first I'm hearing of the show right yeah, now. It's, it's, never uh, heard the creator is Russell Davies. Oh, no oh, way. Yeah. And, and uh -huh. I think it's oh. absolutely, and I love tons of his work yes. and the things that he's done, but this is, I think, the best, maybe the best thing he's ever done. No it's yeah, quite, yeah, it's it's quite brilliant. This. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. And it's got this amazing cast, a lot of whom you will recognize yeah. and from various episodes of Doctor Who. And the other show that I love that I don't think, I'm, I know two other people who watch it is Younger. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, that show. People I love, love that younger. show. It's just so soothing. <laughs> and I just pour a glass of wine and I watch Younger and Sutton Foster's in it. It's just great. I just, I love that show. That's a good one. And then I will just add, um, they're both kind of finished right now, mm-hmm. but um, Fleabag, yeah. of course, because brilliant. And then Gentleman Jack, mm-hmm. because for me, those two shows are about these amazing women who are allowed to be really complicated characters and you don't always like them. And I think that's kind of an, uh, it's a newer thing for TV. I mean, we've lived through that a lot where it's just like, the, well, yeah. the woman has to be likable and the woman has to be... And getting to see, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge just be heinous to people is what is kind of wonderful. And and Gentleman Jack, you know, Saran Jones, who's brilliant in it, and she isn't always the most considerate person in the world. And she does things that are pretty thoughtless against her family sometimes, and it's great. I love it. <laughs> uh, did you, as a Russell T. Davies fan, watch A Very English Scandal? No. I did not. I, I, it's it on my okay. list. It's I really want to watch that. I think it's that. only three episodes. Yeah. Um, oh, thank God. Yeah. I have it. <laughs> You'll be done in a night. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's terrific. It's well worth cool. your time. Cool. Definitely uh, watch that. I don't that. think we got to recommend that much on the podcast, so <laughs> I want to bring it up now. Shoshana, what are you watching? Uh, well, we just finished Chernobyl mm-hmm. at home, uh, which watch. was... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's horrifying but stunning mm-hmm. at the same time somehow, um, and... I, I think what I really loved about it was, uh, if love is the right word, um, is yeah. that there's something about it that is so poetic in the way that it's written and done. And some of the images are so like artistic. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of directorial choices that make it so grounded in real life. And that that balance is, was just so captivating nice. to me. Um, and I will also say it's not a TV show, but I did just watch Midsommar, which is oh, yeah. even more horrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk watch. about it for a second. Okay. I have not seen it yet. Um, mm-hmm. Hereditary, I had a lot of respect for. Uh-huh. I think he's a great filmmaker. Mm-hmm. It was upsetting oh, yes. in a not good horror way. <laughs> is Midsommar more of that? It is more upsetting. Oh, jeez. So, yeah, be, you'd have to be prepared to have your day ruined. But <laughs> I always the, am. <laughs> but there's something about it that, um, I don't know if you guys, yeah. the rest of you guys have seen it. This, yeah. it's, um, it's so interesting how he's blended these vibrant, hmm. bright images mm-hmm. with something that's so dark. And also, I think he conveys grief in a way that I've never seen. That's- I've heard that a few yeah. times. Yeah, and especially the first part of the movie yeah. is just heart-wrenching, and she's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then also the, right. the world-building that mm-hmm. he does, too, where he this, oh, this sort of society that he creates mm-hmm. and just the way even everything looks right mm-hmm. down to what people are wearing and the specific details of their clothing. It's I'm, kind of I'm amazing. I'm really worried mm-hmm. that I'm going to walk into an Ikea and I'm going to see, like, one of those people is going to be the greeter. I'm just going to turn around and leave. And then the door's closed. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm in. You've all convinced me. I'm going to watch it. Uh, so, you know, what are you watching? Well, it's funny because yesterday I was basically between seeing that and seeing The Farewell and asking myself, like, what kind of movie experience do I want to have here at, like, 11 in the morning when I could sneak out to the right. movies? And I went for The Farewell because I thought I still yeah. have to work in the day. The Farewell is a beautiful, I want to see beautiful, that. Yeah. Beautiful movie, I have to say. The I mean, it's also about grief, but in a completely different way. Yeah. And really, mm-hmm. it was extraordinary. And and her performance is really everybody in the movie was great. Um, and then I just have to jump on that flea bag bandwagon. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I actually have two episodes left in this season. Mm. I'm waiting for my wife to catch up, but just. 
she's extraordinary. And the I ending mean, is just like the perfect hear, ending. That's what I hear. And so I'm waiting and just to think like, just to see someone whose every instinct is right. <laughs> it's really like a daunting thing. But I mean, even that first episode and the editing choices. And you think, how did you know to do that? And it's, 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 it's perfect. Cool. It really is. Do you, I mean, there's so much good television. Uh, also, like, it hasn't come up a lot on the show either, but my wife and I just watched Fosse Verdon, which oh, was absolutely oh, that was great. So great. Michelle Williams. She's incredible. I mean. Give her all the awards. She's yeah. a witch. <laughs> <laughs> she's so good. I And I know nothing about musicals, literally mm -hmm. nothing. So there'd be, I'd be like, oh, I didn't realize he oh, did Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> I actually me made too. her watch All That Jazz after yeah. she oh, finished all watching it. How do you feel about All That Jazz? Uh, it's yeah. really good. It's yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, as someone who does not generally respond to musicals, it felt like the music the music numbers in this show and in all that jazz too were what the football was in in Friday Night Lights. Oh, that's such a right? great they were description. The emotional yeah, for yeah. a character. Yeah, um, I'm very good at this. Um, but does it feel like, like there's so much good stuff? Does it feel like uh, you're running to movies more frequently than TV because it feels like a barrier to TV at this point? Because there's so much to get into that you sort of have. Decision paralysis. Uh, I definitely have decision paralysis, but I'm also German. So if I have a list, I have to check things off of it. <laughs> um, so I have a list, and when I finish a show, I'm so happy. Right? You get to check yes. it off. Mm -hmm. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, all right. Thank you all for being here. I hope you'll Thank come you. back. Thanks for having me. So you. much fun. This is fun. Forever. Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Engineered and mastered by Alex Sarchet. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. <laughs>